G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. In this chapter of 1993, we head south through Peru, from Pacasmayo on the north coast to Cusco in the high southern Andes. I hope you enjoy the ride. The morning bus ride south from Pacasmayo was epic. For a few hundred kilometres, we traversed the coastal desert through Trujillo and Chimbote. Then we followed steep canyons up into the Andes. As we climbed higher, thick clouds rolled in to kill the views I'd come to see, especially Mount Huascaran, which reaches nearly 7,000 metres. As the weather closes in, I pass the time by trying to read a second-hand newspaper. My Spanish is good enough now to make meaning of nearly half the text. One of the smaller headlines sends a jolt of adrenaline through me. Tiburon in El Salvador. I read that a shark has just killed two teenagers at the beach a kilometre east of where I'd been surfing at dawn and dusk every day just a few weeks before. The long knife slash next to me as I spun to catch my last wave one night grew a nauseating meaning. After spending a cold, damp night in a cheap room in Yungai, I took a short bus ride up to the Chinancocha and Yanganuko lakes in the hope the clouds would clear. They didn't. But back in Yungai, the continued bleak weather well suited the climb to the town's six-metre-tall statue of Jesus. This Jesus, built on an Incan burial mound, forever blesses the valley below, where 20,000 people in their homes, the entire original town of Yungai, were obliterated by a landslide when a section of Mount Huascaran collapsed during an earthquake in 1970. The catastrophe had been predicted by scientists eight years before it happened, but the federal and local governments denied the danger and threatened to imprison the scientists for uneducated scaremongering. Remind you of anything? It was still raining the next day when I got to Huaraz, 50 k's further south. But that didn't spoil the wedding party in what appeared to be a car mechanics workshop across the road from my simple pension. The music went most of the night, and sounded like a dozen ten-year-olds had been let loose on saxophones, oboes, violins, bicycle bells, some sort of harp and a range of percussion instruments, to simultaneously make any noise they wanted. It was brilliant, crazy, discordant, jaunty and jazzy, a pure musical celebration. The women's outfits matched the music perfectly, white straw hats, dark green socks, bright blue and or yellow shirts, pink cardigans, and yellow scarves accessorised with a sort of woven pashmina with stripes of every colour. Outstanding. The next morning the weather cleared and I visited the Huaraz market. The scene was just too spectacular to stick to my policy of not taking photos of the local people. The women's colourful clothes, the mountains behind and the quiet hubbub of the market were too special to trust to my memory alone so I held my palm-sized autofocus camera to my chest and took a snap without looking through the viewfinder. In the far distance, I could at last see Mount Huascaran, and I wished this was the day I'd pass through Yungay. For the first time, I heard Quechua, the pre-Columbian language of the Incas. Then it was south to Lima, 400 kilometres away, 
the journey back down from the Andes to the coast was scenically magnificent, and once again I entrusted my life to a local driver, who'd probably never sat a test, and his ageing bus. Back at sea level, the road south was plain enough to let me catch up on my diary and ingest the next pages of my Lonely Planet Bible to plan the next few days. The guidebook warned there were a few regions of central Peru that tourists should avoid. The most dangerous was a section of the Andes controlled by a radical communist group called Sendero Luminoso, which means Shining Path in Spanish. Their Shining Path was funded in part by kidnapping foreigners. In 1993, the rumour of the day was that a couple of Dutch backpackers had ignored the warnings and been taken hostage. When no ransom had been extorted, their throats had been cut and their bodies dumped in the desert. Or so the story went. It wasn't hard to avoid Sendero Luminoso-controlled territory, but all roads led to the second most dangerous region of Peru, the capital city, Lima. With brutal budgeting, I guessed I'd have enough cash to last until I got to Arequipa, the next city that had a bank that cashed travellers' checks, a thousand k's further south. So when my bus from Huaraz terminated at Lima's north bus station, I took an expensive taxi directly across town to Lima's south bus station and got the hay out of there. My next stop was Punta Hermosa, a small holiday town about 60 k's further south, which was home to some of Peru's best-known waves, Pico Alto, La Isla and Caballeros. But the atypically flat, grey and windy ocean convinced me to move on after just two nights' stay in a funky room at Mama Bidal's pension. It'd be six weeks before I'd surf again. It took me 30 hours to bust Arequipa, Peru's second-largest city. The thousand-kilometre journey started well when the first bus that flew south on the highway outside Punta Hermosa saw me waving on the desert roadside and reversed a hundred metres to pick me up. Every connection from Chincha to Ica to Ormeno, then on to Nazca, went like clockwork. A dream day on the buses of South America. The moonlike desert changed constantly from deep valleys to rocky hills to caves and tunnels dug into the land by the wind. Oh, and I managed to see one tiny glimpse of a hillside Nazca line from an altitude of two and a half metres, my seat on the bus, as we sped past. As ever, one feature of the journey was the steady pulse of roadside memorials to deadly accidents. We stopped at one of them so a passenger could lay some flowers and say a prayer. The rough stone and mortar tower was inlaid with over a hundred car and truck headlights, so I guessed two buses must have collided head-on and or fallen into the steep valley where we stood. In Nazca town that afternoon, I had a choice between taking a room for the night or catching the night bus to Arequipa. The bus option would be rugged. I'd have to kill ten hours in Nazca before the bus left at 1.30 the next morning, and my Lonely Planet advised it was a 12-hour slog on heavily potholed roads. But this option would save me a whole day and a whole ten dollars, and time and money were both running out, so the decision wasn't difficult. I found a series of simple restaurants who didn't mind me writing, reading and learning more Spanish in a corner for hours between lunch, dinner and a couple of beers. Then after a three-hour wait at the simple bus station, I bust through another brand of desert wonderland, 
sometimes by the coast, sometimes inland, this time lit up by the all-night full moon. We stopped just once for food and relief to arrive at Arequipa at two in the afternoon. What a trek. That night in Arequipa, I stayed in a cheap room at the Hotel Comercio. It was only after paying my bill, in advance, as was always the custom, that I realised my fellow hotel patrons appeared to be either prison or asylum inmates, except for the several young women who were audibly renting their rooms by the half hour. OK, no problem, let's not get judgy, just say good day and smile. But after flaunting my first world wealth by dragging my bags and surfboards up four narrow flights of stairs while they watched, I discovered there was no lock of any kind, not even a flimsy hook, on my room's door. The afternoon wasn't so bad, but when it got dark, the odd noises echoing round the building intensified. At dinner time, I threw as many of the most essential items into my day pack and took them with me as I ran to the nearest small shop and bought a bottle of water and the least poisonous packaged food they sold. I was back bunkered down in my room within ten minutes. After dinner, I barricaded the door with my luggage and every squalid piece of furniture in my room. Despite my exhaustion, it had been 48 hours since I'd got any sleep, I tried to stay awake by writing. A large part of these scribblings in my diary are a reflection on the ethics of staying in a hotel alongside poor and desperate people when I was neither poor nor desperate. My choice to stay at the Comercio was driven by my aim to spend as long as possible on the road before returning to my affluent society. How could I blame the locals for resenting my presence or wanting to steal my stuff? It wasn't the first or the last time this crossed my mind, and my first world guilt was to grow stronger over the next few years. The next day, I celebrated waking up alive by bunkering down in my room again. To save money and to guard my belongings, I did none of Arequipa's touristy things, like the day-long trip to the Colca Canyon to watch real wild condors hover at eye level. This rest day did me good. As it turned out, I wouldn't get another chance to do nearly nothing for well over a month. The only time I left my grimy room was to get some food and buy my ticket on the night train, there was no day train, to Juliaca. There, I'd connect with another train to Cusco, the capital city of the Incas Empire. After another dry biscuit dinner, I loaded up my stuff and headed to the station. The inmates at the Comercio had warned there'd be thieves on the way, and I'm sure they were among them so I half-jogged with my 35 kilograms of gear, including two increasingly out-of-context surfboards, to arrive at the train without incident. Every train ticket came with a designated seat, so the only issue for debate was whether my surfboards should travel beside my seat or in the baggage van. The locals gave themselves the right to keep massive rice sacks full of stuff in the aisles beside them, but they wouldn't allow me the same right with my board bag. 
I think I was right in suspecting that if my boards travelled in the baggage van, I'd never see them again. Eventually, the conductor settled the argument by allowing me, for a small fee, to tie my surfboards to a couple of unsold seats in a first-class carriage a bit further up the train from mine. I didn't know if they'd be any safer in first class than in the baggage van, but it was either that or leave them on the platform. The journey to Juliaca was spectacular, with the desert landscape and skeletal railway structures illuminated by another beautiful moon. The best view was from the open window in the filthy toilet, but you could only stay in there to sightsee for as long as you could hold your breath. As we climbed above three and a half thousand metres, frost formed on both sides of the carriage windows, and again I wondered if I had enough warm clothes and equipment to attempt walking the Inca Trail. For the third night in a row, I didn't get much sleep. The train arrived at Juliaca Station in the icy early morning, where there was a three-hour wait for the train to Cusco. While the sun eventually warmed me up, the local women strolled the platform, inviting their captive audience to buy homemade food that was both delicious and cheap, and or alpaca clothing that was rustic, funky, and a significant financial commitment. With my growing realisation that I was at least one layer short for these higher altitudes, and after a fair amount of haggling, I spent about $30 on the produce of a whole herd of alpaca. Jumper, gloves, socks and a balaclava. It was one of the best investments I ever made. When the train to Cusco finally arrived, mayhem ensued. Again, as at Arequipa, every passenger had a designated seat. But the pushing and shoving was done by the local people desperate to get on board to sell stuff to the passengers. With only half the actual passengers aboard, the train driver attempted to shake the hawkers off by pretending to leave. With much honking of the horn and slamming of doors, the train set off, terrifying those of us who hadn't yet fought our way on board. But the hawkers knew this game, and when the train screeched to a stop just 30 metres down the platform, they ran with the real passengers to the train doors and pandemonium resumed. I'd never seen barging like this, not even among the tour groups taking photos of the Mona Lisa in Paris. And once again, when I arrived at my seat bruised by the crush, there was much debate about my surfboards. Again, I refused to put them in the baggage carriage while the locals were allowed to clog up the aisles with their stuffed full rice sacks. I was relying on the conductor to back me on this one, but he caught me standing on the wooden seat while I put my backpack in the rack and tore me a new one in front of the whole carriage. Oh, crap. Anyways, after I'd made a grovelling public apology, he allowed me to tie the board bag to the armrests between the locals' rice sacks, cages of chickens and the odd baby goat. At last it's time for the train to depart, but the conductor has a hell of a job clearing the hawkers off the train, especially as many of them are trapped in the aisles among surfboard bags, rice sacks and farm animals. The last of these stowaways is a couple of small boys with filthy faces and revolting snotty noses, who suddenly launch into raucous, odd-harmonied singing. At first I think they're taking the piss, but after a few seconds I realise they're serious. Their music is like nothing I've ever heard, and really, really good. Unfortunately, the train is slowly moving by the time they start in our carriage, 
so they're forced to jump dangerously out onto the very last metre of the platform before I've got time to give them some money. Just two more of the world's starving artists, though these two may have been genuinely starving. The train journey is a mazeballs. We meander through sparsely populated farmland and valleys, catching glimpses of ever higher snow-capped peaks. Halfway there, we pause at a non-existent village named Arabanka, while the engine takes a breather. There's half a railway station, a little chapel, and a few more locals selling food and clothing. I'm sure this was the location for the opening scene of the French film The Big Blue. It's dark when the train arrives at Cusco. I find a great place to stay, though the name escapes me, and go out to find dinner. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at the We're Only Here Once Instagram page. The music you've been listening to is written by me and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends, without whom this wouldn't exist. Thanks for dropping in. See ya!